Hi, I'm Amy Goodman. Democracy Now! is funded by you, not by the weapons manufacturers when we cover war or gun violence, not by the oil, gas, coal or nuclear companies when we cover the climate catastrophe. If you believe in the power of independent media, please make your donation today of $5 or $10 or $5 or $10 a month or any amount at democracynow.org. Every dollar makes a difference, especially because generous donors are matching your contribution dollar for dollar. Thank you so much. From New York, this is Democracy Now! Former President Donald Trump has been ordered to pay $5 million to E. Jean Carroll after a jury found him liable for sexually abusing and defaming her. We'll speak to Jessica Leeds, who testified during the trial about how Trump sexually assaulted her during a flight in the 1970s. He was trying to kiss me. His hands were, were on my breasts. He was, um, we were kind of wrestling and... But, I didn't say anything, he didn't say anything, so it was like this kind of kabuki theater in in the silence. Then, as Title 42, the Trump-era pandemic policy blocking asylum seekers ends Thursday, President Biden plans stronger enforcement measures on the border. I spent uh, about close to an hour with, uh, with the Mexican president today. Uh, We're doing all we can. It's going to be chaotic for a while. We'll speak to the Salvadoran poet and writer Javier Zamora, author of the best-selling memoir Solito. As a nine-year-old boy, he traveled alone 4,000 miles to reach the United States. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. A New York jury unanimously found former President Donald Trump liable for the sexual abuse and defamation of writer E. Jean Carroll, awarding her $5 million in damages. The jury, however, rejected a rape charge. During the trial, Carroll recounted her sexual assault by Trump in the dressing room of Bergdorf Goodman in the 1990s. Since it was a civil trial, Trump was not convicted of a crime and does not face prison time. Trump's lawyer said he would appeal, while the ex-president called the verdict a disgrace and said, I have absolutely no idea who this woman is. In a statement, E. Jean Carroll said, quote, Today the world finally knows the truth. This victory is not just for me, but for every woman who has suffered because she was not believed. We'll have more on this story after headlines and speak with one of the witnesses in the trial, Jessica Leeds, about her experience of Donald Trump sitting down on a plane and sexually assaulting her. 
CBS News is reporting the Biden administration is expected to publish today new procedures for quickly deporting migrants at the U.S.-Mexico border ahead of the lifting of the Trump-era Title 42 pandemic policy Thursday. President Biden said he expects the situation at the southern border to become chaotic. The new rule would require the majority of asylum seekers to request refugee status in another country like Mexico before reaching the U.S. Deported migrants will be barred from re-entering the U.S., for five years. Earlier this week, 233 groups, including the ACLU, Amnesty International USA, Detention Watch Network and RAISIS, sent an open letter to President Biden demanding he follow through on his commitment to never detain migrant families and for-profit immigration jails and to allow people to live with dignity in their communities while their cases are being resolved in court instead of being locked up and surveilled. The group's right, quote, detention places people in conditions known to cause mental and physical harm and endanger their lives. Detention is not a deterrent to migrants who have no choice but to flee dangerous or violent conditions in search of a better life, they wrote. Meanwhile, immigrant justice groups in Texas held protests in Austin Tuesday to demand lawmakers reject HB 20 and HB 7, which would deputize vigilantes to carry out immigration enforcement in Texas and create a parallel court system to try migrants and smugglers picked up by state-run patrols. President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy remain at a stalemate over debt ceiling negotiations after meeting Tuesday for the first time in three months. The two agreed to meet again as the U.S. inches closer to a possible default as early as June 1st. McCarthy has demanded spending cuts before agreeing to raise the debt limit, which Biden has refused to consider as Democrats slam Republicans of economic hostage-taking. Biden spoke after Tuesday's meeting. Everyone in the meeting understood the risk of default. Our economy would fall into a significant recession. It would devastate retirement accounts, increase borrowing costs. According to Moody's, nearly 8 million Americans would lose their jobs and our international reputation would be damaged in the extreme. Calls are mounting for President Biden to invoke the 14th Amendment, which would allow him to continue issuing debt bypassing Congress. Biden has said he has not taken that option off the table. In the occupied West Bank, Israeli soldiers shot dead two Palestinians during a raid in the town of Kabatia. Meanwhile, Israeli airstrikes in the Gaza Strip continued for a second day, with at least one Palestinian killed today, after the air raids killed at least 15 Palestinians and wounded 22 others Tuesday, according to officials. This is a shop owner in Gaza. It's a hard situation, to be honest. We face fear. We are staying tuned. We don't know what will happen. The situation is everyone doesn't know what will happen, whether we are going to have a war or ceasefire. In Ukraine, French journalist Armand Soldin was killed in a rocket attack Tuesday in Khasivyar, near the war-torn eastern city of Bakhmut. The 32-year-old journalist worked for the AFP news agency. The Committee to Protect Journalists says he's the 15th reporter to be killed since Russia's invasion of Ukraine last year. In more news about the war, the head of the Russian mercenary Wagner Group said President Putin's troops have started to abandon their positions in Bakhmut. This comes as Britain's poised to designate Wagner as a terrorist group. France's National Assembly approved a similar measure Tuesday and urged the European Union to follow suit. 
in Pakistan. Nearly 1,000 people have been arrested as protests broke out following the arrest of the former prime minister Imran Khan Tuesday. His supporters gathered today as Khan made another appearance in an Islamabad court, where he was indicted for selling state gifts during his premiership between 2018 and 2022. A court yesterday ruled his arrest was lawful as his legal team continued to fight the charges. Former UK Labour Party leader Jeremy Corbyn called Khan's arrest a dark day for democracy. Authorities have shut down social media sites while a judge is set to rule on a request for permission to detain Khan for at least 14 days. This is one of Khan's supporters. What they have done, is this not hooliganism? Is this not terrorism? Imran Khan had gone to appear before court. Now where is Supreme Court? Where is High Court? Where are the judges? In Turkey, President Recep Tayyip Erdogan and his main rival, Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu, have been held—have been holding massive rallies ahead of crucial elections this Sunday that could see the end of Erdogan's rule after more than 20 years in power. President Erdogan announced Tuesday his government's raising its workers' salaries by 45 percent in a bid to counter voter concerns over Turkey's ailing economy amid soaring inflation. Erdogan also is facing continued backlash over over his response to the catastrophic February earthquake and damning reports of lax building re regulations and neglecting warnings about the safety of structures. Let's talk the truth here now. My whole family is gone. They are all deceased. Why wouldn't I be angry against the government? No machinery came to help. Nothing did. Kemal Kilic Daralu, who is backed by a multi-party alliance, has vowed to pursue closer ties with NATO and the European Union, reinforce democratic institutions like independent courts and a free press. He also said he would reverse Erdogan's dissolution of the position of prime minister in the 2017 constitutional referendum. We are not going to leave the fate of the Turkish Republic in the hand of one person, and no one will accept the words of just one person. Conservative President Erdogan has also appealed to his religious base, accusing his opponent of being pro-LGBT at an Istanbul rally Sunday. Back in the United States, embattled Republican Congressmember George Santos is expected to appear in a New York court today after federal prosecutors file criminal charges against him. Details of the charges are not yet known, but the New York congressman has been under investigation for his many lies around his campaign financing, biography, education and work history. Santos has defied numerous calls to resign. Separately, a hearing in Brazil is scheduled for Thursday over charges Santos committed check fraud. In California, a state reparations task force approved recommendations on compensating and apologizing to black residents for generations of discrimination and violence from slavery to the present day. Congressmember and U.S. Senate candidate Barbara Lee, who's helping lead a congressional push for reparations, spoke at the meeting Saturday in Oakland, which she represents in the U.S. House. Reparations are not a luxury for our people, but a human right long overdue for millions of Americans. Millions of Americans. A promise of 40 acres and a mule made to formerly enslaved people over 150 years ago has yet to be filled. And it's critical that the promise be made, that was made to our ancestors many years ago is kept. And the process of truth telling and racial healing, that's gotta be carried out also. The atrocities committed against black Americans are undeniable. And reparations are a tangible route to acknowledging and making amends. 
If the measure is approved by California's legislature and Governor Gavin Newsom, it'll provide monetary compensation to black residents for discriminatory policies, including mass incarceration, policing, housing discrimination, health care inequalities and environmental racism. In labor news, service employees, international union workers at the union's headquarters in Washington, D.C., have authorized a strike as they continue contract negotiations for better wages and protections. Many walked off the job Tuesday as employees accused the SEIU president, Mary Kay Henry, and the secretary treasurer of supporting union-busting tactics and refusing to negotiate in good faith. Paramount Global is laying off a quarter of its staff and shutting down MTV News. Head of Paramount Media Network's Chris McCarthy made the announcement to employees in an emailed memo. Paramount's also the parent company of CBS, Nickelodeon, Comedy Central and Showtime. The latest media layoffs come after massive job cuts at Vice News, BuzzFeed is closing, and other companies. And David Miranda, Brazilian journalist and the first LGBTQ member of the Rio de Janeiro City Council, has died at the age of 37. The news was announced by his husband, journalist Glenn Greenwald, on Tuesday. David Miranda had spent nine months in intensive care after being hospitalized last August for a severe gastrointestinal infection. Tribute to Miranda, who also served in Brazil's Congress, poured in following the news. The Brazilian president, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, noted his extraordinary trajectory. Miranda, born in a favela and orphaned at the age of five, continued to fight for Brazil's poor and the LGBTQ community, which came under renewed attack during the presidency of Jair Bolsonaro. NSA whistleblower Ed Snowden also paid tribute to Miranda, celebrating his courage and righteousness in helping bring his leaked documents to light in 2013. Miranda was notably detained for nine hours at London's Heathrow Airport, but refused to cooperate with authorities. Snowden wrote, it was that courage that set him free, unquote. David Miranda is survived by his husband and their two children. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. Coming up, Donald Trump has been found guilty of sexually abusing and defaming E. Jean Carroll. The jury has awarded her $5 million. We'll speak to a journalist as well as Jessica Leeds. She's one of the people who testified in Carroll's trial about her own sexual assault by Donald Trump. Stay with us. Nobody said it would be easy. Nobody said that it would all be fine. But to get where we're going, brother gotta hold the line. It ain't a matter of if, it's just a matter of time. To get where we're going, sister gotta hold the line. Hold the line, hold the line, hold the line, hold the line. Now you gotta stay steadfast and tread lightly, cause they're looking for a reason to knock you down. But you can't act too politely, 
in the trenches, you gotta get loud. You gotta stay steadfast and tread lightly. Cause they're looking for a reason. Tom Morello of Rage Against the Machine singing Hold the Line in a video he posted in solidarity with Oakland teachers who are on strike. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Former President Donald Trump has been ordered to pay $5 million to writer E. Jean Carroll after a jury found him liable for sexually abusing and defaming her. The jury in the civil trial reached its verdict after just three hours of deliberations. The jury, however, did not find that Trump raped Carroll. In a statement, E. Jean Carroll said, I filed this lawsuit against Donald Trump to clear my name and to get my life back. Today, the world finally knows the truth. This victory is not just for me, but for every woman who has suffered because she was not believed, she said. During the trial, E. Jean Carroll recounted how Trump sexually assaulted her in the 90s inside the dressing room of the Bergdorf Goodman department store, located a block from Trump Tower. During the trial, Trump's defense team did not call any witnesses, and Trump rejected his chance to testify during the trial. On Tuesday, Trump, who's running for president again, posted a number of messages and videos on his social media platform blasting the verdict. We'll be appealing this decision. It's a disgrace. I don't even know who this woman is. I have no idea who she is, where she came from. This is another scam. It's a political witch hunt. In a video deposition recently made public, Donald Trump claimed E. Jean Carroll was, quote, not my type. But during questioning in the tape deposition, Trump mistook E. Jean Carroll for his ex-wife, Marla Maples. You're saying Marla's in this photo? That's Marla, yeah. That's, that's my wife. Which woman are you pointing to? No. Here. Carol. Oh, is that? The oh, person okay. you just pointed to was oh, E. Jean Carroll. Who is that? Who is this? Point. And the person, the woman on the right is your then wife, I don't Ivana? know. This was the picture. I assume that's John Johnson. Is that Carol? Because it's very blurry. In a moment, we'll be joined by Jessica Leeds, who testified during the trial about how Trump sexually assaulted her during a flight in the 1970s. But we begin with Moira Donegan in San Francisco, an opinion columnist covering gender and politics for The Guardian, also a writer in residence at the Clayman Institute for Gender Research at Stanford University. Moira, thanks so much for joining us. Can you first respond to the verdict, to a unanimous jury finding Donald Trump liable for sexually assaulting and defaming E. Jean Carroll. Well, thank you for having me, Amy. And I think something that to remember about this verdict is that it was unusually fast. That suggests that this wasn't very close. You know, usually in even a civil trial like this, a jury will be uh, out in deliberations for much longer. They came back yesterday in just under three hours, which suggests that, you know, there wasn't a lot of doubt in the jurors' minds about who was telling the truth here. I think this is a really significant moment uh, for American women and specifically for the Me Too movement. You know, Donald Trump was sort of the figure whose boorishness, his shamelessness, his, you know, long-standing uh, impunity for sexual assault really did inspire this rage at the, you know, ongoing and, and very pervasive sexual abuse of women, uh, mostly by men. And his uh, 
lack of accountability for many years had been a motivator and an insult. You know, it was insulting, I think, to the citizenship of American women to have somebody uh, who had been so contemptuous of their dignity uh, in a position of great power. So that a court of law has now held him accountable, uh, held him liable, is, I think, a really significant moment. Can you talk about the law that enabled E. Jean Carroll, decades later, to bring this lawsuit against Donald Trump here in New York City? Yeah. So, you know, the law under which this lawsuit uh, was filed is something called the New York Adult Survivors Act, which was a long time coming. Uh, it is a law that extended the statute of limitations or created a one year, they call it a look back window, uh, that began on Thanksgiving, uh, during which, you know, uh, survivors of sexual abuse who have uh, sort of gone past the statute of limitations, whose uh, assaults occurred too long ago to file civil suits, uh, have this opportunity over the course of a year uh, to, you know, look back, to bring back their uh, claims and to file um, civil, not criminal, but civil uh, suits that would have otherwise been prohibited by the statute of limitations. E. Jean Carroll lobbied for this law, uh, and her attorneys filed the lawsuit uh, just within hours of it having gone into effect. And so people can actually still file suits, right? That window is still open till, what is it, November? Yes, there's six more months. If there's any survivors in New York who uh, have, you know, assaults, who have claims that uh, have happened beyond the statute of limitations, they still have that opportunity to file civil claims and to try and get some justice. During the trial, the jury was shown the infamous Access Hollywood video in which Trump brags about grabbing women's genitals without asking permission. I gotta use some Tic Tacs just in case I start kissing her. You know, I'm automatically attracted to beautiful. I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. You just kiss. I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Whatever you want. Grab them by the pussy. You can do anything. You can do anything, Trump said in that videotape. Well, during a videotape deposition seen by the jury, Trump defended his comments in the Access Hollywood tape. Yeah, and this has become very famous in this video. I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. Just kiss. I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Grab them by the p You can do anything. That's what you said, correct? Well, historically, that's true with stars. It's true with stars that they can grab women by the p Well, that's what, that's, if you look over the last million years, I guess that's been largely true. Not always, but largely true. Unfortunately or fortunately. And you consider yourself uh, to be a star? I think you can say that, yeah. That was Donald Trump in the videotape deposition that was shown in court. And yet he refused to be there live to testify, um, which is extremely significant, Moira. If you can talk about this, I mean, he was golfing in Ireland at his golf course and said that he would be challenging E. Jean Carroll, whoever she is, and the judge in court. And when the judge took him up on the offer and said that this was, what, last Thursday, that he'd have until Sunday, even though his lawyer had rested the case, to say whether he would come into court, he didn't.
the significance of this, Moira. So the only thing the jury saw were these damning clips from his deposition. It's a really damning, it's a really remarkable exchange, you know, that uh, phrase, fortunately or unfortunately, really, I think, bolstered uh, Carol's claim that the Access Hollywood tape amounts to not, as uh, Donald Trump had characterized it, mere, you know, quote-unquote locker room talk, but really a confession, right? He's uh, reaffirming not only uh, his misogynist attitudes, but really a true lack of remorse uh, and, and, and lack of uh, moral objection to sexual assault. Uh, you know, Donald Trump performed so badly in that deposition, and he incriminated himself further in this kind of remarkable way, as you, as you noted. Uh, and I think that, you know, it might not have been uh, entirely unwise for him, from a legal standpoint, uh, to avoid coming to the trial. I think, you know, he would not probably have performed very well on cross. He doesn't have a lot of self-control. Uh, he's very— um, indignant, he's very uh, impulsive, and, you know, I don't, I don't think he would have helped his own case. That said, I think it did also make a impression on the jury, you know, how much uh, disregard for the proceedings, uh, disinterest in mounting a real defense, um, sort of seemingly, uh, you know, casual uh, irreverence for the seriousness of what was being alleged in this civil court. You know, that, I, I don't think that helped him either. Uh, I think, you know, all that the jurors really heard was uh, a ton of corroboration from uh, E. Jean Carroll, a ton of, um, you know, confessions and uh, reaffirmations of his, you know, character and habits from the long record of Donald Trump and particularly that excess Hollywood tape, which was played many times in court. Uh, but they didn't really hear much of a defense from Trump's side. Uh, and that, I think, you know, really made a big impression. I want to bring into this discussion Jessica Leeds, who testified during the trial. She told jurors about how Trump groped her during a flight on a plane in the 1970s. In 2018, Jessica Leeds came to our Democracy Now! studio here in New York and described what happened when she sat next to Trump in first class on the flight. Dinner was served, and it was after dinner when, truly, all of a sudden, without a word, without a buy-you-leave or about any kind of social conversation, he started groping me. What does that mean? What did he do? Uh, his hands were, were uh, he was trying to kiss me. He, his hands were, were on my breast. He was, um, we were kind of wrestling, and, but I didn't say anything. He didn't say anything, so it was like this kind of kabuki theater in, in the silence. Um, it, I remember thinking, why doesn't the guy across the aisle say something? Why doesn't the stewardess come back? Uh, but it, it, and it seemed to go on forever, but of course it didn't. He put your, his He's, hand up your skirt? Yes. Uh, he, he started putting his hand up my skirt. And that's when I, with effort, uh, managed to wiggle my way out, grab my purse, and I went to the back of the airplane. And I sat there until the plane landed and was completely clear before, because I didn't want to run into him. That was Jessica Leeds speaking on Democracy Now! in 2018. Again, she testified in E. Jean Carroll, um, the defamation and battery trial. Uh, she is joining us now from Asheville, North Carolina. Jessica Leeds, thanks so much for rejoining us on Democracy Now! Can I first get your response to 
President Trump being found guilty of sexual assault against E. Jean Carroll. I'm really pleased. I'm pleased for E. Jean. I'm pleased for what it says. I am sorry that the jury couldn't uh, come up with the rape charge, but they, that's kind of understandable. We, baby steps here. Baby steps. You know, I was curious. Um, uh, she was able to file this suit because of this law that had opened up in New York um, that still has six months um, where people can sue someone who uh, assaulted them years ago. Are you weighing um, suing Donald Trump as well? No, I have kids and grandkids and great grandkids. I would not want to put them through that. But what do you—which is quite a testimonial to E. Jean Carroll, Jessica—what um, do you make of what E. Jean Carroll did, going through this again decades later? And talk about what made you decide to testify. There are dozens of women who've accused Donald Trump of sexual assault. You were one of two women who testified in E. Jean Carroll's trial. Well— I think they wanted to use people who could show a pattern of behavior, especially over the years. Um, this is the, the what I got from, from talking to the lawyers. E. Jean is a, a very strong, creative woman. And when she finally recognized the damage that had been done to her, it had taken a while. And for her to step up and do this takes a great deal of courage. Um, but I think she got some good support. I think she had damn good lawyers, and I'm, I think it paid off. Um, I think I mentioned one time in an interview that, that I thought that all of these women had basically the same story. So for him to totally reject us and is just sort of ridiculous. You know, it's interesting what... Donald Trump said. Um, he continually said now um, on social media and this video that he released, um, he said he does not know this woman. Now, interestingly, when um, E. Jean Carroll's lawyer in the deposition showed him a picture, he kept saying, she's not my type, she's not my type, showed him a picture and said, can you identify who this is? He identified the woman the lawyer was pointing to in a photograph standing next to him as his second wife, Marla Maples. But in fact, it was E. Jean Carroll. But <clears throat> when he says, I did not know her, I don't know her. In fact, so many of these women, including you, Jessica Leeds, he did not know when he attacked you. Is that correct? That's correct. And not only that, at, at this point in his life, he he has selective memory. And most of these situations, most of this activity, is just like second nature to him. It, it, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't register at all, which is horrifying because the psychological damage it does on people who are sexually abused is tremendous. But for him, ah, 
He likes women. He thinks he likes women. He likes dominating women. And he likes... But the, the real gist of it right now is he can't see past the aging process. So he looks at aging and she's a late 70s lady and he can't see what she looked like or or see the beauty in her face right now. It's it's a, it's stupid but that's part of our society's problems too. And also this continually saying she's not my type. My he's not my type to sexually abuse. I mean that's as we right. all know rape and sexual abuse has everything to do with power and not yes. to do with attraction. Just yes. leads when we interviewed you I always remembered you talking about the effect afterwards. I mean you weren't even sitting in first class. The flight attendants uh, came to you sitting right uh uh in in the back and said, you can sit up here. And that's how you ended up sitting next to this man, Donald Trump. Yes, that's correct. You said you never wore a skirt again on a flight? That's right. That's right. Well, and and I'd have to say, what was it, two, a week ago, uh, there was a report of uh, a man putting his hand up the stewardess's skirt. To this day and age, I mean... <laughs> This continues. Jessica Leeds, do you hope that this will inspire other people to come forward, not only uh, accusing Donald Trump, um, but especially, for example, this law in New York, though it doesn't have to be just this law, but the Adult Survivors Act that goes through the one-year look-back where uh, a sexual assault survivor can um, file a case, this one-time uh, period of time. Do you hope people who have been victims of sexual assault and rape will come forward now? The wheels of the justice system moves so slowly. It's it's that's a tough call. I I really don't know how useful that is to encourage people who have been sexually abused to take that route. I would just wish that in our society we could address this issue, talk about it, do some research, and help the survivors. You know, you might even look upon this as a form of we send men off to war and come back and they've got PTSD. Well, how about women who've suffered sexual abuse, getting some counseling and, and help and whatnot for that? That's what I think. Jessica, I wanted to play for you Trump's attorney, Joseph Takapina, standing on the steps of the courthouse yesterday after the verdict came down. You know, we're we're in one sense gratified. I know some people in this camp are very happy um, that, you know, the rape claim was rejected. But, you know, I'm not. And uh, I am happy about that, certainly. But I'm not happy that he was found liable for anything whatsoever. Um, he wasn't fully committal on this, saying, well, at least Donald Trump wasn't found guilty of rape. Um, so there were three choices in battery. Um, one was rape. One was sexual assault. And um, uh, the third was um, uh, sexual, unwanted sexual touching. Your response to that point, though, interestingly, Donald Trump hasn't made it very much, clearly. 
um, he understands the significance of uh, this decision by a civil court coming down unanimous, six men, three women, finding him guilty of sexual assault as he runs for president again. But your response to that? Well, the lawyer, who is very aggressive and could be described as a bulldog, is doing his best to represent Trump. I hope he gets paid. But and how much this is going to affect Trump's core, who who are unfortunately cult-like in their devotion, I don't know how much this will the, this will help. But if it helps Eugene, and it brings the, the topic out for discussion and coverage, okay, I'm 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 satisfied. And final question, um, the issue of this being a civil trial. So, in fact, um, the difference between being found guilty and being found liable. Uh, yeah, that, it, that's what I mean about going to the justice system. There, there are people who are going to equate the fact that he wasn't convicted and they got confused over charges and, and whether he, who was who and who was defending and who was prosecuting. It got, it got pretty confusing. So uh, we need to go back to civics class. But I, I think this was a good outcome, and I'm, I'm very thankful. And I'll just ask a last question. You came out before President Trump won election in 2016 as did well over a dozen women. Was it 20, more than 20 women? He was elected president. Now he has been found liable for sexually assaulting a woman um, in a department store dressing room. He's running for president again. Your thoughts? Again, he has a core of of people who, who will vote for him. True, this, the truest thing he ever said was he could stand at the corner of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and it would not lose any votes. That is so true. I just hope that the rest of the world can see through and, and, and know that we need somebody much, much better than this to, uh, to manage the country. Jessica Leeds, I want to thank you for being with us. Uh, she is one of two witnesses who testified in E. Jean Carroll's case about their own experience of Donald Trump sexually assaulting them. She told jurors about how she sat down on a plane next to him in a flight in the 1970s and how he groped her. Moira Donegan, I also want to thank you, opinion columnist for The Guardian, uh, writer-in-residence at the Clayman Institute for Gender Research at Stanford University. We'll link to your pieces on this case. Coming up, we speak to the Salvadoran poet and writer Javier Zamora, author of the best-selling memoir Solito, about his 4,000-mile journey without his family from Salvador through Guatemala, Mexico, to the Sonoran Desert of Arizona as a nine-year-old. Stay with us.
Digging through my refrigerator, I'm gone Cowboy head in my old Levi's and I'm gone Cup of Joe in a Pioneer's tribe and I'm gone I'm gone by Sundance songs. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. On Thursday at midnight, the United States will end the pandemic policy known as Title 42 that's been used by the Trump and Biden administrations to block nearly three million asylum seekers at the U.S.-Mexico border. Some reports indicate there are as many as 150,000 migrants on the Mexican side of the border who hope to apply for relief as soon as possible after the policy is lifted. This is a Colombian migrant who joined others at the border fence in the Mexican city of Tijuana Tuesday. I'm like in limbo. Let's see what happens. I hope to be able to pass to the United States because I have a son there. He's 18 years old and I want to be with him. This week, authorities in El Paso and other U.S. border cities have carried out targeted operations against hundreds of migrants who already arrived and were sleeping on the streets outside overflowing shelters. President Biden said he spoke by phone Tuesday with Mexican President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador about border security issues. I spent, uh, I think, close to an hour with, uh, with the Mexican president today. Uh, we're doing all we can. Uh, the answer is, uh, it remains to be seen. Uh, we've gotten overwhelming cooperation from Mexico. Uh, we also are in the process of setting up resi- uh, uh, offices in Colombia and other places where you can or someone seeking asylum can go first. So, but it remains to be seen. It's going to be chaotic for a while. CBS News reports the Biden administration plans to launch new procedures for quickly deporting migrants at the U.S.-Mexico border as soon as today. Most asylum seekers will be required to request refugee status in another country like Mexico before reaching the U.S. Deported migrants would be barred from reentering the U.S. for five years. This week, over 230 groups sent an open letter to President Biden demanding he follow through on his commitment not to detain migrant families and to end for-profit immigration jails, writing, quote, detention places people in conditions known to cause mental and physical harm and endanger their lives. Detention is not a deterrent to migrants who have no choice but to flee dangerous or violent conditions in search of a better life, they wrote. For more, we're joined by Javier Zamora, a Salvadoran poet and writer whose New York Times best-selling memoir, Solita, tells the story of his own odyssey to the United States as a nine-year-old boy from Salvador, across Guatemala, Mexico, and eventually through the Sonoran Desert. He traveled unaccompanied by his family, by boat, by bus, and by foot. After a coyote abandoned his group in Oaxaca, Mexico, in Oaxaca, Javier made it to Arizona with help from other migrants. He's also the author of Unaccompanied, a collection of poems about his experience migrating to the United States as a child to reunite with his parents. Javier Zamora, welcome to Democracy Now! It's an honor to have you with us. Thank you for having me. 
Before we talk about your own personal journey, which is so powerful and so important to understand, um, I'm wondering if you can respond to what's happening, to President Biden saying it'll be chaos at the border for a time, uh, to the pandemic era, Trump Title 42 policy being listed, lifted tomorrow night at midnight and what this means. Um, I think it's always been chaos, right? Um, I don't think that this will fix anything. Things will get worse. Things are already really bad. And I just can't help to think of all the people waiting, all the people that will continue to wait, and all the people who are still fleeing for, for their lives from all over Latin America and the world. And I would just hope that this presidency and any future presidencies will treat immigrants like actual human beings. So let's talk about that journey that so many have taken through so many countries um, by you telling your own story. Um, can you start by telling us about where you were born in El Salvador, um, and how you ended up coming to the United States. Take us on that journey of your life. Well, I was born in 1990 in the small fishing rural village of El Salvador called La Herradura. And, you know, I was born during wartime. And because of the Salvadoran Civil War that started in 1980 and in 1992, my dad fled in 1991. The war ended, but the war didn't end at the same time. So my mom left my country in 1995, Javier, and I was left at the care. I'm only uh, interrupting yes. for a moment, because before you take us on that journey, um, if you could expand more on when you said your father left. You're talking about a country where the U.S. backed the um, military in Salvador, uh, well-known for killing thousands of Salvadorans. Can you give us a picture of what that U.S. policy meant? Because I think that is what is so absent from so many discussions as people now try to make their way to the United States. You know, at one point, only Israel was getting more money than El Salvador in the 80s, and we're talking millions of dollars a day. And before the U.S. got involved, the left was winning, and what the left wanted was equality, women's rights, and education. And because of those asks, my dad was a leftist, and he was the head of a co-op. One of his older brothers was disappeared by the military in 1980, and the violence was everywhere. And because of those reasons and because of his ide ideological leanings, he had to flee in 1991. Um, and same with my mom. You know, it is still difficult in my country in 2023 and also in this country being a woman. There's a lot of gender-based uh, violence. And because of, you know, we uh, talked, you were talking a lot about um, sexual assault and that is everywhere. And those were that was a huge reason why my mom also fled the country. And so you were, what, one year old? I was one when my dad left, and I was five when my mother left. Being raised then by your grandparents. Mm-hmm. And talk about them deciding for you to take this journey and how you traveled. 
You know, um, the moment that my dad left, he would uh, we would communicate via, via letters and phone calls. When my mom left, it was the same thing. And what they both told me uh, was that they were going to come back. And we have to remember that in the brief period of time, El Salvador had peace. And that was, it, it lined up with my childhood. 1993 till 1999 was perhaps the most peaceful moment in my country's timeline. And, but in 1997, you know, people were beginning to get shot in my hometown. And my parents changed from, we're going to return to El Salvador to you're going to come be with us in the United States. And so from seven, eight, and nine, I knew that I wanted to be reunited with my parents. What kid doesn't want to be and wake up next to his parents? And so I didn't really understand how I was going to get here or how dangerous it was for me to travel the 4,000 miles that I did. But what I did know is that I loved my parents and I really, really, really wanted to be with them. So you went with your grandfather from Salvador to um, Guatemala? Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, so my dad, my dad, my grandpa accompanied me all the way to a border town called Tecumuman, which is still a very major crossing hub. And from then on, uh, he gave me over to the coyote, a smuggler, and I wasn't the only one with him. I was part of a larger group of seven other immigrants. And he, the smuggler, was supposed to uh, bring us to the United States in as little as one week from Guatemala. And of course, that doesn't happen. And then your grandfather leaves and talk about how you traveled on from there and the massive danger. I mean, you almost didn't make it to the United States, if you could then talk about going through to Mexico and what happened. You know, I still don't know why um, my trip took the turns that it did. But the plan was for me to cross the a river uh, from uh, Guatemala into Mexico. That was the original plan. But I have done some research, and already in 1999, the Mexican government was militarizing the southern border. And this is also continuing to happen now. Um, and so because of that militarization, the Coyote thought that it would be easier for us to cross into Mexico if we took a 22-hour boat ride. Uh, from Guatemala to bypass uh, Chiapas and land in Oaxaca. And that is what we did. But when we were supposed to get on the boats, there were news that three boats had capsized and immigrants died. And this is still happening in the southern borders and people, as people are trying to get over here. So that was uh, my fiasco and like number one when I was so close to death. As a nine-year-old, I didn't really understand it as such. What I understood was that I, was, I couldn't swim and that I was scared of sharks and I was scared of the night. So those were my fears. In reality, I was very close to death on that boat. And that was my first day in Mexico. And when we land, we also face a checkpoint, which still happens daily all over uh, Mexican states against Central Americans and other immigrants. And because of those checkpoints in 1999, we were dragged out and robbed by the Mexican um, military. And from then on, it was weeks uh, until we 
we meaning the group of uh, six other immigrants, um, until we figured out how to make it to the Sonoran Desert and the U.S.-Mexico border. So talk about crossing the border and what it meant to be in the Sonoran Desert. I mean, you have obviously a very different experience right now living in Tucson, Arizona. Um, mm -hmm. But what the— um, what it meant to cross and then to be there, to survive in the hot, parched desert. You know, similar to the boat, I, as a kid, uh, my nine-year-old brain didn't—I think subconsciously I knew how close to danger I was. But in the front head um, of my brain, I was like, oh, look at this weird plant called a cactus— and I'm really thirsty. I don't have food, but if I keep on walking, my parents are at that finish line. So that's how I understood this as a nine-year-old. All the adults around me, by that point that we made it to the U.S.-Mexico border, it wasn't only the six. There were immigrants from uh, Ecuador. There were immigrants from Cuba. Uh, there were immigrants even from Brazil uh, at that time who we all joined together in a group, I want to say 50 plus. And each try, which it took me three tries to cross the Sonoran Desert, we suffered a lot. You know, the first time we were apprehended by Border Patrol and I spent two, two nights or one night because I, I blacked my incarceration up. Um, I blacked it out. And so I spent either 48 hours uh, in detention. And, you know, we hear about the effects of detention. I spent less than three days in there, and I still suffer PTSD from those few hours that I was there. And that was only my first try across in the desert. The second time, we ran out of water, and we ironically were rescued by a Border Patrol agent after we needed to get water from a ranch. And we were released back into, Me into Mexico. And finally, the third time, we uh, finally made it. You know, you're bringing me back to a conversation we had during the pandemic with the family of Armando Alejo Hernandez, who um, had come up from Mexico to see his sons in Utah and um, left the messages and then died in the desert, in the Sonoran Desert. And so what you survived, Javier, um, is truly astounding. And when you think of how many thousands of people who have died in the Sonoran Desert alone, uh, the artists that we travel to in the desert who put up crosses for as many people as he could, who he learned about their names, uh, this all um, being done in the name of uh, U.S. policy of deterrence, your response to that, and also for people to keep in their mind, you were nine years old. You know, in my trips as a nine-year-old and in writing this book, which took me 20 years to even begin to process everything that I witnessed and everything that I've survived— in the process of writing this book, I realized that there were certainly people that died um, in each of the crosses that I attempted to get to this country. And it is because of them that I am here. And I just hope 
that anybody listening, anybody reading, and even the president himself, hopefully, just realize, realizes that we're all just human beings trying to have a chance at a better life. And thank you to all those artists, thank you to all the writers, anybody who believes that, that us immigrants are more than our trauma and are more than what we're asking for. We're just human beings, okay? Um, yeah, and Javier, you convey this so powerfully and poignantly, both in your poetry and in this book, Solito. But let's jump forward to how you do convey this, how you became a writer. But first, tell us how you met your parents, how you saw them in the United States, and then who influenced you, how you came to be a writer through all of this trauma. You know, I left El Salvador on April 6, 1999, and I finally met my parents on June 11, 1999. And uh, I opened a door in Tucson, Arizona, which ironically is my home now. Um, and I see two shadows. And I, I recognize my mom because she left me when I was five years old. And then I see this man behind her. And I knew how my father looked or what my father looked like from pictures but pictures and reality are two different things and so he was a stranger and i think that's a metaphor for how i felt um after not being around him for eight years and it took us a few uh i want to say months until i got comfortable with not only my dad but with my mom being in this country and i had to live um with the fact that you know we were all undocumented uh, from 1999 until I'm 21 years old, I don't have papers and I can't return to my homeland. And I think that fact is a huge reason why I became a writer. And it was in high school that when, you know, when Google uh, becomes Google, uh, that I Google Salvadoran writers. And the first name that comes up was Roque Dalton, who is a leftist uh, writer who wanted to create a better El Salvador. And I started reading his work, and what really impacted me was that Roque Dalton spoke like us, and he wrote like us, meaning the rural Salvadorans, not the elite Salvadorans who wanted to replicate uh, Spain Spanish, but he wrote like the people. And... I hope that in my both my poetry and my prose, I am in tune with our caliche, which is Salvadoran slang. And that's all I wanted um, when I was 13, 14, 15 years old, and I was searching for Salvadoran books. Um, and I hope that my book now could speak to another nine-year-old Salvadoran, Guatemalan, Honduran kid who has immigrated uh, or is thinking of immigrating to this country. Well, Javier Zamora, um, we thank you so much for spending this time with us, Salvadoran poet and writer, author of the best-selling memoir Solito, also unaccompanied, a collection of poems about his experience migrating to the United States as a nine-year-old child. 
to reunite with his parents. Um, Javier has been a Stegner Fellow at Stanford and a Radcliffe Fellow at Harvard and holds fellowships from the National Endowment for the Arts and the Poetry Foundation as well. We're going to interview him in Spanish after the broadcast, and we're going to post it on our Spanish website. Um, you can go to democracynow.org and click right through. That does it for our program, Democracy Now! is produced with Mike Burke, Renee Feltz, Dina Gesder, Messiah Rhodes, Nermeen Sheikh, Maria Teresena, Tammy Warrenoff, Tarina Nadura, Sam Alcoff, Tamari Astudio, John Hamilton, Rabbi Karen Honey Masood, and Sanji Lopez. Our executive director is Julie Crosby. Special thanks to Becca Staley, John Randolph, Paul Powell. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks for joining us.